Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In this week's episode, Father continues his introduction to morality with paragraphs 1761 to 1876. Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle on them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful. Grant us in the same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through the same Christ, our Lord, amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, welcome back. Uh, We're continuing our tour of the Catechism, part three, which is entitled Life in Christ, which is, it kind of corresponds to the morality, um, the morality part of the Catechism. We've been going through the um, introductory chapter of this part, um, which is entitled The Dignity of the Human Person. And last time we were together, we we covered um, four articles, and each of these articles, and then the five or the four that we will cover today, all touch upon the dignity of the human person. So what does it what does this mean, This dig- the dignity of the human person? What's it grounded in? Or um, how? what is the basis of our dignity? Well, each of these eight articles point to something which is um, an element or a part or a reason for our dignity. And the catechism in doing this, it's really rooting all of morality and our look at the Ten Commandments, which will be the second half of, of our sessions um, this summer and summer and fall, is on the Ten Commandments. So we can really understand the Ten Commandments within this, this concept of dignity. So just to kind of briefly go over those, so the first ground of our dignity as human beings, as human persons, is that we are made in the image and likeness of God. The second is that we're called to happiness, to this eternal beatitude. Third, that we have freedom, and with that, a a responsibility in exercising that freedom. So in that um, section, paragraph 1730 through 1742, we looked at freedom and and the idea that really our freedom is our ability to kind of take responsibility for our actions, to freely deliberate and choose actions, um, and ultimately to choose and act on the good. The fourth element of our um, dignity is our ability to act in a very human way. And so the catechism defines a human act. A human act consists of an object that's chosen, so what type of act. Second, the end or intention for the act. And then the third, the circumstances surrounding that act. 
the idea then I think is that part of our dignity as human beings is that we're able to deliberate on our actions and intentionally choose them. So rather than kind of functioning in this sort of um, cloudy area or just responding, um, part of our dignity is that we're reflective on what we do and what our action is that we intend. So it really challenges us to, to really live both this section on freedom and the section on the human act. It really challenges us to live in a more intentional way and to make sure that our actions are intentional, um, that we know what we're doing, that we're intending them, that we're aware of the circumstances surrounding these actions. And that leads us into the fifth article, which is where we're starting today on paragraph 1762. And with this um, article, we hit the fifth element, the fifth reason for our dignity as human persons. And this, in some ways, may be the more difficult for us to embrace as an element or as a part of our human dignity. And this section deals with our passions. Because so often, I think, um, we have a sort of stoic approach that our passions um, need to be suppressed or that our passions are intrinsically evil, are evil in themselves. But the Catechism really reminds us that having passions is a part of our human condition, of being a human person. And they actually are an element of our of our dignity as a human person. Having these passions and um, using them accordingly in the right way. So the, the section, the article starts with this, I think, very important, crucial paragraph to kind of summarize the passions, the human passions. And that is, the human person is ordered to beatitude. We've already heard that. By his deliberate acts, we've already heard that, the passions or feelings he experiences can dispose him to it and contribute to it. So the passions are there to help us to do two things. One, to direct us towards happiness and that eternal happiness, which we call beatitude. And then second, to assist us in the deliberation on our acts. Now, we know that one of the effects of the fall is that our passions are unruly. Um, but if they are trained, they can actually dispose us to making better acts or deliberating on our acts. So we, even from the beginning, we get this strong impression, this um, important point that the passions and our feelings are not evil in themselves, but actually are a part of the human, human condition. And not just in this fallen human condition, but they're actually part of our dignity as human beings. Then the Catechism defines what passions are. Passions are feelings or passions, are emotions or movements of the sensitive appetite so this function within us, this sensitive appetite to kind of um, desire 
sensitive things, tangible things, physical things, that inclines us to act or not to act in regard to something felt or imagined to be good or evil. So generally, there are two types of passions. Um, one is more, we might kind of attribute it more to love, that we're inclined to something, we desire something. And the other one is more inclined to hatred, that we're repulsed by something, or it might even be better to refer to it as fear. We're kind of afraid. So this, um, you know, in, in, in natural kind of anthropology or biology, they would talk about the, the fight or flight reaction. So this idea of being drawn towards or running away from, this, you know, kind of summarizes what our passions are. They are natural components of the human psyche that ensure the connection between the life of the senses and the life of the mind. So lest we just be kind of drawn into ourselves and into reason, the Lord has endowed us with passions to, to really use our senses to be in touch with the world, to want to, in a sense, to want to know. There are many passions, the catechism tells us, but the fundamental, the most fundamental passion is love, which is aroused by this attraction to the good. Um, the apprehension of evil causes hatred, aversion, and fear of the impending evil. So again, this attraction or kind of repulsion are the two kind of basic fundamental passions. And that really lines up with the basis of morality itself, which is to love the good and to avoid the evil. So we should be drawn to the good and we should be repulsed by the evil. And so that's really the, the beauty of the passions is that when we can get them lined up correctly, it, they sort of can help us do the work of, of living this life. Because once we train them to be attracted to the right good, to the highest good, then they're going to they're gonna kind of help everything with that sort of momentum of the passions to go for the, the right good. And in the same way, if they're trained rightly to be repulsed by evil, then they're going to really help us to avoid the near occasion of sin or avoid sin itself. So then the catechism goes on to um, talk about the passions and their relationship to moral life. A couple points. Um, first of all, in themselves... Passions are neither good nor evil. Passions are said to be voluntary either because they are commanded by the will or because the will does not place obstacles in their place, in their way. So what we want to do is to train our will to oversee the passions or rather maybe to train our passions to listen to the will. It is possible, so in the case of, say, um, I mean, we see this, I mean, even in the civil civil law, you know, if someone is enraged by passion and kills someone, it's going to be a lesser degree of murder than if they premeditated it and planned it out. 
um, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know whether that I think one is murder one and the other one's murder two. I have watched many years of Law and Order, but um, that that's the extent of my legal knowledge. But it is true that there. Is, I mean, even in um, the in civil law, there's a distinction between that, and the idea is that yes, the person is responsible for that act. Um, even if they weren't in control of their passions, because that's a choice to allow my my passions to be with, without control. You know? um, it's just not as a human of an act, we might say, in the sense that it's reflected on and the will is, is really deciding and acting that, yes, I am going to respond and do this act, and my anger at this person is going to lead me even more to fulfill this act. That would be, that's, you know, like, that's sort of the classic difference between, you know, murder one and murder two. Um, in 1768, strong feelings are not decisive for the morality or the holiness of persons. This is, I think, is a crucial point, not just for... Um, morality but also for the spiritual life in general is you know um, it doesn't even even though there is a role for feelings and passions we don't want to necessarily um, define our state by the feelings or passions so if if a feeling is absent um, it does not necessarily mean that the action is good or bad or that the person is holy or not holy. Passions are morally good when they contribute to a good action. They are evil when they um, act in the opposite way. So, so often people will say that anger, the feeling, the passion of anger is evil. Now, the Lord does say in the Gospels not to be angry at someone, but he also is very quick to clarify on that, you know, don't say raka, you know, so there's an, there's an action that follows with it um, in a sense of, of a hatred for this person or an act against this person. So in that sense that anger leads us to harm our brother, that is, that's the sinful. But anger in itself, as with every other passion, is neither good nor evil in itself but it is based on the action. So they talk about oftentimes righteous anger. So sometimes anger leads us to, you know, be zealous in the cause, you know. So for instance, if there's an injustice that we see in the world, um, that anger felt by that injustice, which is, it's a passion, can actually lead us to do good things, to try to correct this injustice that's in the world. Um, so... Anger is usually the passion that is beat up the most. But we have to ma make sure that we kind of distinguish how we're using the word angry. Because if, if or anger, if anger is itself an act that is, you know, isn't connected to an evil act, then that anger takes on that evilness of that act. And that's precisely what the Lord is saying in Matthew, you know, as on the Sermon on the Mount, as he kind of expounds on all the Ten Commandments. So, again, I think uh, we'll talk about this.
particular passion of anger a little bit more when we get to the fifth commandment, um, which is the thou shalt not kill commandment. Um, there's an it kind of elaborates a little bit more on this. Um, but in general, I think we want to keep in mind that the passions in themselves can be directed to good acts, lest we just dismiss them. So, um, to uh, there's another um, paragraph 1772, which I don't usually hit these in brief paragraphs. I know some people just read the in briefs and don't read the rest of the paragraphs, but I think in 1772 in the in brief, it's actually um, a very important one because it gives a list of principal passions. So the principal passions are love and hatred, desire and fear, joy, sadness, and anger. So those are the seven the seven principal passions. Then Article 6 is the moral conscience. So, again, we frame this in the idea that this is the sixth ground for our dignity as human persons, that we have a conscience. Um, the Catechism begins, with a, again, with a paragraph from Gaudium et Spes, which is reminding us that the Catechism's treatment of morality is rooted in the Second Vatican Council. So that's why the Catechism starts with this quote from Gaudium et Spes. And really, um, at the Second Vatican Council, even though you know St. Paul talks about a conscience, um, it's certainly a part of the Christian tradition. Um, Vatican II speaks more clearly on conscience than had been prior. Um, one of the great influences on the church's understanding of conscience is St. John Henry Newman, um, the cardinal from England, as opposed to the German um, bishop of Philadelphia, which is John Neumann. But John, John Henry Newman um, speaks quite a bit about and in fact he's quoted in this section from the Catechism. So the... Um, the conscience, we, we can understand conscience in two, two ways. And not that there's two definitions of it, but that it really serves two functions. It is sort of the legislator of our actions. So when we were looking at that human action theory, it really is the conscience that is making these prudential judgments. You know, it's, it's part of our prudential judgment on what kind of action we're making. So what is the object that I'm choosing? Is this object... Um, evil in itself, intrinsically evil, or is it a good act, a good object, or a neutral act or object? And then, what's my intention? You know, why am I really doing this? Um, and then, what circumstances are surrounding that? Now, that's least important, but, um, you know, what we should be doing is, is engaging our conscience in a legislative way, analyzing what we are about to do or what we are do, or what are going to do, um, or the, you know, the question, the action that is posed to us to do. Most often, though, the conscience is used in um, this secondary way, which is as a judge of something I've already done. So I look back at my action and analyze what I've done, what I knew, 
what whether or not I intended it um, and what my intention may have been. But what we want to do is to be proactive with our conscience and not just reactive um, or legislative rather than just in sort of this judicial role of judging something that's already happened. Um, but the conscience does both of those. And that's why we, we have this phrase in the, in the Catholic tradition of examination of conscience. So that before we go to the sacrament of confession or before we go to bed at night, we examine, we allow our conscience to judge the actions of the day and to gauge whether or not, um, you know, what our objects were what our intentions were, how, um, you know, how uh, much we intended the action or not. And then 1778 defines the, the conscience for us. Conscience is a judgment of reason whereby the human person recognizes the moral quality of a concrete act that he is going to perform, is in the process of performing, or has already completed. In all, he says and does, man is obliged to follow faithfully what he knows to be just and right. So it's the con conscience is a judgment of reason. So our reason, our intellect, is looking at our the human act that we've that we've done, or will do, or have done, or are performing as the Catechism says. And we look at the moral quality of that particular act. So that entails what we've already talked about, that the human act, those three elements of the human act, the object or what type of act it is, the intention why we're doing this act, and then the circumstances. Um, later, when we talk about sin, there's also going to be a couple other elements that we consider when we analyze our actions, and that is whether we had full knowledge of whether the object was good or evil, and then second, um, whether we had full use or full consent of our will, you know, whether we were blinded by passion, you know. But then we have to ask ourselves, the next question is, did I le allow my passions to take it take over? But we'll get to that. Don't let me um, fast forward too much. Um, 1779 has a very important point. It is important for every person to be sufficiently present to himself in order to hear and follow the voice of his conscience, to be sufficiently present to himself or to herself in order to hear and follow the voice of his conscience. So this idea of sufficiently present, I think, is very crucial. This is um, what the catechism and what the church and what Christ is asking us to do, to, be, to live our human lives sufficiently present, um, reflecting on what we're doing. This requires, the catechism tells us, an interiority that is all the more necessary as life often distracts us from any reflection, self-examination, or introspection, you know, um, you know that we're called to live this examined life, this self-reflected life. Um, you know that um, what's Thoreau, who I can't stand, I can't believe I'm quoting him. Um, I disagree with everything that Thoreau says, but the one thing that Thoreau said that 
sticks in my mind is, you know, that most people live lives of quiet desperation in the sense that they don't really reflect on what they're doing or how they're living or, you know, the important questions of life. And and this is even for people who are, you know, self-identified Catholics and practicing the Catholic faith, many of them do not live a reflected life, not just reflecting on their actions, but what are these very important questions that we're facing um, and that I, th I think it's the crucial you know a crucial way Jesus Christ has set us free so that we can live and wrestle with these f big and fundamental questions of who we are and what we're about what our identity is um, and the meaning of our actions so the 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 call really is to live a life sufficiently present to ourself, a life of reflection, of interiority, interiority. And that becomes, of course, more difficult in this age. Um, so the catechism then goes on, the dignity of the human person implies and requires an uprightness of moral conscience. So our dignity isn't just rooted on the fact that we have a conscience, but that it's upright which is why we can devalue our dignity or lose our dignity or kind of, um, you know, like one thinks of the prodigal son who squandered away his inheritance. We can squander our dignity. Um, and we, we squander the, our dignity that's rooted in our conscience by not having an upright conscience. Um, and so what does this upright conscience include? First of all, it, in, it entails a perception of the principles of morality. And the catechism uses one of these fancy, fra these fancy, fran fancy words, synderesis, synderesis. Um, that's in paragraph 1780. Synderesis means basically the principle of morality, which it defines right there. The, the basic principle of morality is do good, avoid evil. Do good, avoid evil. That's what it all reduces to. Um, do good, avoid evil. Second, the application of these principles to a given particular circumstance um, through the um, discernment of reasons and goods. So applying the principles to my actions in a given situation. And then finally, judging about the concrete acts yet to be performed or already performed. So um, in order to have an upright conscience, one, I need to know the moral principles. Second, I need to analyze the situation before me and apply those principles to the situation. And then third, I need to make a judgment, a judgment about um, the action to be done or the action that has already been done. Again, this sort of future and past role of conscience, that it's we're dealing with actions that we haven't done yet that we're thinking about, and we also are reflecting back on acts that we already have done. But it's interesting this word judgment is used. Again, um, you know, judgment is just like anger is sort of one of these bad words that we're not supposed to use, you know, um, in, in, in a um, kind of a 
a, a version of Christianity. But you know, we act, we do have to make you know, judgment may, basically means I make a rational um, observation about the facts of the reality. You know, like boom, like so if. I know what the action is, if I know what the principles of morality is, and this action before me violates those moral principles, then I can make a judgment and say this is not an action I should do. Um, but of course, I apply my conscience to myself, not to others. And that is the, that is the, crucial, the crucial lesson. Um, Conscience enables one to assume responsibility for their acts performed. If a man commits evil, the just judgment of con conscience can remain with him as the witness to the universal truth of the good. So, you know, conscience is there to, to basically hold me accountable and to remind me. Um, you know, and sometimes we call that guilt, um, but again, guilt is a is a judgment. It's a rational judgment. It's not a you know if you notice on that the list of passions, it was not on there. Now, not the, you know not the to say that there's not guilty feelings, but guilt is a rational judgment based on my actions. Um, if I have a lingering feeling of guilt, it may it may well be that it's a lasting witness to the fact that I have done something wrong. Um, and that's why the conscience is there. You know, even if we don't want to listen to it, it's like, you know, Jiminy, Jiminy Cricket, even if we don't want to listen to it, he's going to tell us that, that we did something wrong. So people will say, well, this is just a feeling, you know, it's, but that feeling is supporting a rational judgment based on my conscience that I've looked at this act, I know that the act was wrong and I did it, you know, so the result is there. Paragraph 1782, man has the right to act in conscience and in freedom so as personally to make moral decisions. We have to respect the conscience of others. Um, this is going to be um, I mean, and in, in some sense, to violate the conscience of another is to do violence against them. Um, and so we talk about this fundamental freedom of conscience, not just the freedom of religion, which is really the freedom to worship and to practice a religion. But there's also, with that, the freedom of conscience, which is to exercise that judgment on my own actions whether they're right or wrong, and that if, if my conscience tells me that something's wrong, that I not be forced to violate that. Um, the Catechism then talks about the formation of conscience. Um, it must be informed. Um, it must be well-formed. This is part of the dignity of conscience, not, that, not, that it, not just that it be upright, but that we um, that it be well formed that we're responsible for this. The Catechism tells us that the education of conscience is a lifelong task. Um, prudent education teaches virtue. It prevents or cures fear, selfishness, and pride, resentment arising from guilt, and feelings of complacency born of human weakness and faults. 
The education of the conscience guarantees freedom and engenders peace of heart. And this is, I think, is an important role for parents. Um, I, in my own life, I can remember, um, you know, not just my parents telling me what was wrong, but, you know, whenever maybe, you know, maybe I had a, a mild case of scrupulosity, although no one would accuse me. No one that knows me really would accuse me of scrupulosity. But, um, the, you know, when I was growing up, there were certain actions that I thought, well, maybe this is wrong. And I can remember my mom and dad explaining to me that, you know, th this is not, you know, no, you just picked up a stick in your neighbor's yard. You didn't, you know, you didn't steal something or something, you know, like, so this is very crucial because um, it, you know, it helps in the, the formation of conscience, you know, for parents. And they, they need to be honest if something is wrong, um, but they also need to be honest if something is not wrong. Because that's where a lot of the problems with feeling, feelings and conscience kind of can come into place. So I think that paragraph 1784 is important um, for parents, even though parents are not mentioned um, in that paragraph. Um, 1785, the sources for the formation of conscience are really um, threefold. First of all, the Word of God, the divinely revealed Word of God. With that, guided um, by the authoritative teaching of the church. And then third, the witness or advice of others. So when we are struggling with the with the the morality of an act, you know, with making a judgment on an act, it's not bad to talk to people who are who have a well-formed conscience, especially people who whose conscience are well-formed by the teaching of the church and by, you know, their openness to the Word of God. Um, the Catechism then says that part of this ground of the dignity of a conscience, again, upright, it's upright. Second, it's well-formed. Third, that we choose in accordance with, the consci with conscience. Faced with a moral choice, conscience can make either a right judgment in accordance with reason and the divine law, or on the contrary, an erroneous judgment that departs from them. So, even though we, we hold to the conscience, there is right and there is wrong, you know? So the, the conscience, um, our conscience does not create the moral law, the universal law. It's not the lawgiver. And in that sense, maybe legislator is not the best metaphor. It's executive and judicial. So our conscience is the executive and judicial branch. The, who is the legislator? It is God. God is the source of the divine law, the moral law. Um, but he, man, must always seriously seek what is right and good and discern the will of God expressed in divine law. So it is God who is the legislator. To this purpose, man strives to interpret the data of experience and the signs of the times by the help of the Holy Spirit and his gifts. So, you know, um, the con our conscience is aided by grace and by the Holy Spirit. And so a couple principles or rules, you know, what we want, might want to say is the fundamental basic laws of the conscience is one, 
One may never do evil so that good may result from it. Two, the golden rule, whatever you wish that men would do to you, so do unto others. And then third, charity always proceeds by way of respect for one's neighbor and his conscience. But there is the possibility of an erroneous judgment of our conscience. The human person must always obey the judgment of their conscience. They're, you know, that's the executive. It's got to be done. And this is, of course, in regards to future events, you know, to future to acts, you know, that I'm, I'm making a judgment on whether to do or not. Um, this ignorance can also be imputed to personal responsibility. So the the catechism says that um, if a person deliberately acts against his conscience, he would condemn himself. Now, no conscience says this is a good action, and so therefore I'm not going to do it. It's usually a conscience says this is a bad action, and I'm going to go ahead and do it. So we, we should keep that in mind. Um, so if I determine that this is a bad action, I should avoid it. If I determine that this is a good action, then there's nothing against it, you know, against me doing it. Um, sometimes, though, the, um, the conscience remains in ignorance and makes an erroneous judgment about acts to be performed or already committed. And this may be you know, so the catechism also applies it to looking back at acts that we've already done. In some cases, 1791, the, our ignorance is of our own personal responsibility. So I should have known that this type of act is evil. But I didn't take responsibility for learning that. I didn't, you know study what the church teaches on this. Um, and in that case, I am responsible for a malformed conscience, for this, for this um, uh, an erroneous judgment. Ignorance of Christ and his gospel, bad example by others, enslavement to one's passions, assertion of a mistaken notion of autonomy of conscience, that somehow my conscience is the supreme lawgiver that I make, I determine what's morally right. Uh, rejection of the church's authority and her teaching, lack of conversion and of charity, these can be at the source of errors of judgment and moral conduct. So when we make an error in our conscience, when our conscience errors in its judgment, it could be because someone's given us a bad example. Well, I knew this Catholic, and he did this, so it must be all right, you know. Enslavement to one's passion, so I'm so blinded by anger that this seems to me like a reasonable thing to do, you know. That I, I think that throwing a brick through a person's window is, is acceptable behavior. Um, again, that, well, you know, I believe that, um, you know, I determine the moral value of my 
act. And so therefore, I say that this is good, you know, this sort of wrong understanding of the conscience or rejection of the church's authority and her teaching. I don't really care what the church's, church teaches. It do, it's meaningless. It's not the instituted interpretation of the divine law. A lack of conversion and of charity. And I think this is an important point because even though we aren't the judges of other people's conscience, I think a lot of people like to play that role. And one of the things that we should can consider is that other people may not have had a conversion experience as ours. And and so the actions that they're committing, they don't see as necessarily wrong because they haven't encountered Christ yet. Um, I think this is crucial when we look at you know, people in our lives who are not living the moral life that we expect to live and that we know is right. Um, there has to be, you know, we can't, in a sense, stand at an intersection with a sign um, condemning an act in the most violent way um, of describing that act and um, think that they're automatically should get this, that their consciences should automatically be moved. Con that encounter with Christ and conversion is an important point in conscience formation. Um, and, and that is a sense where we have to kind of live in a messed up world and a messed up age, recognizing that people aren't going to understand um, the revealed divine moral law because they, they don't know God yet. They don't know Christ. They have not met Christ. So we have, I think we need, this is a great challenge to keep in mind. Um, that even though we will say later in the catechism that all the moral law is written on the divine, you know, on the human heart, you know, it is part of human nature. Nonetheless, you know, the world is messed up because of original sin. And we really need Christ for a greater clarity for the formation of our conscience. Um, in 1793, if ignorance is invincible or the moral subject is not responsible for his erroneous conscience, the evil committed by the person cannot be imputed to him. It remains no less an evil, a privation, a disorder. One must, therefore, work to correct the errors of moral conscience. So, um, you know, the, um, so if someone is invincibly ignorant and they do this action, even though it's an evil, it's still an evil act, but they're not responsible, they're not culpable for it. Um, the, um, you know, it can't be, in a sense, attributed to them, is what the Catechism said earlier in the last time we talked. Um, it is nonetheless an evil action. And, and, you know, we should correct the errors of a moral conscience. So if we do see someone committing an action that is um, an, an intrinsically evil act, we should desire to help them to form their conscience. Um, there, are, there are different ways of forming conscience, though, and there are different strategies, and there are better strategies and there are worse strategies in doing that. So I think 
one should keep in mind paragraph 1792 before they light the world on fire with 1793. So, um, Then another part, the seventh part of our dignity as um, human persons are the virtues. The virtues are a ground of our dignity. Um, the virtues are an important part. And, you know, it's interesting. We've seen all of these different elements. And all of these eight elements are they're the ground of our dignity of human persons. Different um, moral theologians and different, you know, teachers of the faith and catechists will accentuate one, of, one or more of these different elements to help explain the whole moral teaching of the church. Um, I think it's best to use all eight. One, because that's what the catechism does. But two, it's always better to give the fuller and the richer sense. There has been a lot of emphasis on virtue um, formation um, in catechesis and in preaching and in the examinations of consciences and the sacrament of confessions. And it's very good, it's very important because it was neglected for so long. But it is only one out of eight of these elements of the grounds for our dignity of human persons. And so, you know, we need this fuller understanding of morality, not, not to just reduce it to the vir virtues, you know, to the development of virtues and the avoidance of vices. Um, but really we need that whole fuller sense of morality. That's sort of a wonkish um, response to some people out there that you know, maybe may, they might get the message or not. But um, morality, uh, virtue um, morality though is very important and, um, and we need to, we do need to um, emphasize it. A virtue, so first of all the catechism defines a virtue as a virtue is a is a habitual and firm disposition to do the good. That's the basic definition. It's a, a, a habitual and firm dip, disposition to do the good. Then in 1804, we define human virtues. So it's a fuller one, a fuller definition of virtues. Human virtues are firm attitudes, firm attitudes. So there's something intellectual to it. Second, stable dispositions, we're inclined to do it. Habitual perfections of intellect and will that govern our actions. So the human virtues are about the whole human person, forming the whole human person. To govern our actions, to order our passions, and to guide our conduct according to reason and faith. So these eight elements of our dignity they're all interconnected. And that's why even though if one wants to kind of label their morality a virtue morality, um, it does, so it does touch upon the passions, which we've heard in that definition. It, it touches upon the human act and what the human act is. It touches upon our conscience even. Um, because the virtues are there to kind of help us to, con you know, I mean, it is hard to stop before I do every action, before everything I say, to stop and to reflect on the on this particular act. I mean, you know that that's every thought, every word, every action. You know, 
Now, that's hard. And, of course, we think that we can do that by our own effort, which is, of course, the gravest error of morality, you know, to think that we will somehow perfect, you know, we can live uh, th this call to be a human perfectly. No, like, it, we need, someone else has to do it for us. And, and he's our creator, too. So, but, so virtues are, are crucial because it is impossible to really to look at every single act, every single word, and every single thought and analyze it. But if we're inclined to do these certain acts and to avoid these certain acts, then, you know, that's a game changer, you know, you know. I, you know, it's almost the difference between um, individually crafting something and an assembly line, you know. So if I have to carve every individual wheel versus I have a way to kind of streamline the production of wheels, then it's a game changer. And so that's, that's the importance of virtue is that we get into a habit of doing these kind of things and we get into a habit of avoiding these kind of things. So, um, The four cardinal virtues. And these virtues, so that we talk about cardinal virtue, virtues versus theological virtues. The cardinal virtues are prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. The difference is um, cardinal virtues are human virtues which we can develop on our own. But of course, even with saying that, we need the assistance of the Holy Spirit and divine grace in order to grow in those. Lest we think that, you know, we can do this all on our own. So these natural virtues, sometimes they're referred to as natural virtues because, it, you know, it's... Um, you know, we can develop these by our human acts and by our human efforts. Um, assisted, though, I would again emphasize by grace. Um, so to define um, these four card prudence, first of all, is the virtue that disposes practical reason to discern our true good in every circumstance and to choose the right means of achieving it. So prudence is very close to our conscience. And that's why, again, you know, a fuller view of Catholic morality marries virtue with this un understanding of conscience. And that prudence is this virtue of making good judgments, using our conscience well in, in situations and circumstances. Stopping, stepping back to analyze the situation before I act. That's, um, that's a habit that we can develop, the habit of prudence, of stepping back, analyzing this situation, the circumstances behind it, what's being proposed to me, and then making the right judgment by my conscience. So that's prudence. And that in itself is a habit, to step back and to think before I act. Um, the uh, catechism says that this really is the charioteer of the virtues 
Because again, you know, if we can stop back, step back and analyze what we're going to do, then that's going to help us in all the other areas, you know, with and, and developing all the other hap the good habits, the virtues that we need. Justice is the moral virtue that consists in the constant and firm will to give their due to God and his neighbor. If it's directed to God, we call this the virtue of religion. Um, but it's basically um, the habit of right thinking is what the catechism will say. So while the other one was the habit of making good judgments, justice is the habit of, of right thinking. That I plant into my mind um, that I should you know, love my neighbor as myself, you know, the golden rule, that I should love God above all things, um, that I owe everything to God, and that I owe the res respect and charity to every person. Um, and that justice is, um, that's the virtue of justice, is to begin to see people for their dignity and for their value, and things for their dignity and for their value. And that includes God himself, who has, of course, an infinite dignity and an infinite value. Um, but to begin to see these in, in the right way. And that itself requires, you know, again, that first act of prudence of stopping. So I'm stopping at this action. I've run into this person. I stop. Before I engage in a conversation, I want to make sure, you know, what... Who is this person and what do I owe them, you know? Well, I owe them, you know, respect, at, uh, the respect of their dignity and charity and love. So it began first with prudence and then with justice to follow. The next is fortitude, which ensures a firmness in difficulty and constancy in the pursuit of good. It strengthens the resolve to resist temptations and to overcome obstacles in the moral life. So, again, prudence. I look at this situation, this act that's being proposed, and I think about it. And then I look at it. Um, is this going to help me or is this going to hurt me? And then I, I resist it if it's going to hurt me, or I lean into it if it's going to help me. Um, and so, again, it begins with prudence, analyzing what's before me. So the ice cream that is before me, now that's going to go into temperance, but, you know, whether perhaps, it, well, let's, let's look at this difficult task that is before me, you know. I have to mow the grass this day, you know, today. Do I wait until it's longer and thicker and perhaps hotter the next day or do I lean into it and do it now um, and that that judgment kind of le leads to my strength in decision making you know so again it begins with prudence prudence is the golden charioteer the charioteer of the virtues. Temperance is the moral virtue that moderates the attraction of pleasures and provides balance in the use of created things. 
It ensures the will's mastery over instincts and keeps desires within the limits of what is honorable. So, again, it begins with prudence. I stop, I look at this. Do I really need this or do I not need this? The Catechism in 1810 and 1811 really reminds us that even with human virtues, that they are purified and elevated by divine grace. So Aristotle, who is a Greek you know, pagan philosopher, and even before him, Plato, recognized the, the four um, cardinal virtues. That's really our origin of those. It's in both Plato and Aristotle. Um, but... These natural virtues that even the Greeks could recognize are elevated by grace. Because it is not easy for man, wounded by sin, to maintain moral balance. Then we have the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Um, These virtues are different than the cardinal virtues in that Um, it's really um, God himself who infuses them. In 1813, they are infused by God into the soul of the faithful to make them capable of acting as his children and of meriting eternal life. So we can't obtain the theological virtues on our own, by our own effort. They're completely in pure grace. The first of these is faith which is the theological virtue by which we believe in God and believe all that he has said and revealed to us. And the Holy Church proposes for our belief because he is truth itself. It's interesting, though, that the Catechism does say that in the next paragraph that even though faith is a gift, it can, in a sense, shrivel up and die. Um, A faith apart from works, is dead, James tells us. So when it is deprived of hope and and love um, and, and thus does not fully unite us to Christ and to the church, faith can die, you know. And we, we see this in people. In fact, I had a conversation the other day of someone who was, they had had a conversion, subsequent conversion, but they just saw their faith die. They didn't go to Mass. They didn't pray. Um, they didn't, you know, really care about other people. And so their faith in God just diminished. They lost their faith, but then it was, you know, kind of reignited. So faith is really an affirmation of the truth of God, at least in this, according to this section of the Catechism. Hope is the theological virtue by which we desire the kingdom of heaven and eternal life as our happiness placing our trust in Christ's promises and relying not on our own strength but on the help of the grace of the Holy Spirit. So it's trusting in the promises of God. It corresponds to the aspiration of happiness which God has placed within us. So hope is connected to this promise of eternal happiness. Um then charity charity is the theological virtue by which we love God above all things for his sake and our neighbor for ourselves. Um, 
It is the means by which we are able to um, live the commandments um, and really to, to grow perfectly in the virtues. The fruits of charity are joy, peace, and mercy. Joy, peace, and mercy. Um, then this section of the catechism also throws in the gifts and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So the cardinal virtues are virtues which we can grow on our own by our own human work, although assisted by grace. Second, the theological virtues are virtues infused in our soul by God at our baptism. Um, Then we talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. Um, These gifts, the catechism says, are permanent dispositions which make man docile in following the promptings of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit kind of Um, And his presence in our life disposes us to these, to these, to these gifts that help us to follow his lead. So um, it might be that um, the gifts are, you know, I use this um, analogy is that, you know, the, the gifts are really the work of the Holy Spirit through us. So the Holy Spirit is doing these things through us. As opposed to the fruits, which are perfections that the Holy Spirit forms in us as the fruit, first fruits of eternal glory. These are charity, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, generosity, gentleness, faithfulness, modesty, self-control, and chastity. The fruits of the Holy Spirit are the indications that the Holy Spirit are present. So um, the gifts are the works of the Holy Spirit through us. They're really not our works. They're not our virtues. They're the Holy Spirit's work in us, through us, you know. And then the fruits are sort of the evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. So that is, uh, I think, is a way to distinguish the gifts versus the fruits. Finally, as we um, draw to an end, the catechism talks about sin. I'm going to um, hold off and cover that at the, um, in more detail at the beginning of our next section. So that's paragraph 1846. And then what we're going to do is go into, um, and I think there's a good segue between that into the next chapter, which is chapter 2, the human community. Uh, But let's end with a prayer in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral.
Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless and have a great day.